Hello and welcome to Radio. Radio is a podcast by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. It's been 940 days since the first case of COVID was announced in China. And to most of the people I talk to, they're all ready to just sort of move on and forget. But we live in a world where the impact of this this virus and the things governments did are going to live with us for, for years to come. And in this series, we want to talk to and understand the stories of entrepreneurs who stood up when most people were hiding at home and how so many of them have turned this once-in-a-lifetime chaotic event into the opportunity of a lifetime. Today on the podcast, I'm super excited to have Mike Scott, who's got a very fancy title, which is Head of Product Partnerships and Web3. But I met him when he was the co-founder and CEO of a company called Nona Digital. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining me on radio and welcome. Thanks for having me, Russ. Uh, always good to chat to you and hopefully we can share some experience that helps somebody listening. So I'm going to give you the same question as given every single person. Can you give me your your dual elevator pitch? One is what you're currently doing and what is what you were doing in order to get you to what you are currently doing today. Cool. So what I'm currently doing is, um, so my business, and I'm sure we'll get to that, my business, Nona Digital, was acquired by a company called Yoko. If you're in South Africa, you'll know Yoko. If you're not in South Africa, Yoko empowers small business to accept payments and a whole lot more but it's a, it's a fantastic fintech that's scaled very impressively. Um, from a Nona perspective, before the acquisition, we focused on fintech and blockchain scale-ups uh, to help them accelerate their product development. So we had our own definition of scale-ups, which was basically that they had hit product market fit and their challenge had shifted from money problems to velocity problems. So they were no longer sort of trying to get the cheapest debt possible, but actually they were going, okay, we've raised capital now. How do we turn this capital into velocity? Um, and there's obviously a natural fit with that focus versus the acquisition. Um, so that's that's the pitch. That's the high level. That's super cool. And uh, I'm assuming you're not one of those people that arrived at this point kind of immediately on day one. Like, can you talk us through a little bit of your journey as an entrepreneur? Like, how did you end up in that in this space? Yeah. So I mean, as most entrepreneurs, it's a hell of a long story. So I'll, I'll try not to give the long version, but. Started my first business when I was about 15, still at school. And the reason for that was many, many fold. But I think the main reasons were one, I'm pretty ADD or, or ADHD as, as we call it now. Never been diagnosed, but I don't think I need to be. Um, and, and why I say that is because I, the way it manifests for me is I almost have zero ability to focus or learn about things I don't care about. So I can't make myself like pay attention or make myself learn about something, which is quite tricky. But the flip side of it is when I am very passionate about something, I think I have an ability to absorb information and get stuff done at a much, much higher level. The, the trouble is I don't have control over that, right? So I can't pick and choose like, like what I do there. So why I'm saying that is university for me was like a prospect that just wasn't there. I was just like, there's no ways I'm going to get through university. Also, I'm extremely impatient. So I didn't want to wait to get through university to start a business. <laughs> so, um, so I started this business at, at, in high school and it was a very unsexy business. It was like tech support, um, but a pretty decent business and a lot of history there. But long story short, learned a lot of how not to run a business through that, as, as most of us do, and made lots of mistakes and um, eventually sold that business, like I think 15 years later. Um, and that was an interesting time for me because this might sound really silly now, but 
when I sold that business, it was the first time I realized that businesses can actually have value beyond just revenue and profit. So it was kind of this realization that like, oh, that's interesting. There's actually like an asset here that you can sell. Mm. And it might sound crazy now at nearly 40 years old, but there was a shift in my thinking of businesses. And, and what I mean by that is it was a shift to going, whether or not you want to sell your business, it's a very good idea to build the business as if you're going to sell it, even if you're not going to, because it shifts the way you think of the business as an asset and a store of value and, and all these things. So that business was a tech support business and, you know, we did IT infrastructure and SLAs and all of those sort of things. And what was happening a lot was we were getting our clients saying, hey, can you build us a website? And we were saying, no, we can't. It's not what we do at all. And they were going, oh, but you're technicians and it's all the same thing. So just please build us a website. And we we're going, well, it's really not. Computers. <laughs> you do computer things. Yeah, you make, <laughs> make internet for me. So, so what we did is we went, okay, you know, as an entrepreneur, I couldn't turn down opportunities. So I would look for designers and look for developers and do terrible jobs of building websites for people. And it was just a horrible experience every time. And then long story short, a friend of mine joined my business uh, to work in the business for a bit. And I needed a website for, for my business. And he said, hey, you've got to meet these two guys, Ed and Gord. One of them studying actuarial science and the other one, I think, was doing fine arts or something along those lines. And I sort of said, hey, Ed and Gord, I need a website. And I still remember I paid them 9,000 Rand and they built me a WordPress website. And it was amazing. The site was great. The experience was good. It was cheap as hell. And I was like, this has been awesome. Ed, Gord, do you want a job? And they said, not a chance, buddy. We won't work for you, but let's talk about maybe working with you. Let's maybe start talking about starting a new business. And I was like, ah, oh, I don't know about that, but all right, let's talk about it. And then they sort of said, well, you know, if we join, you've got to bring Paul along. So Paul joined. And then Andrew, who was working for me at the time, was like, well, I made the introduction and I'm going to start this business. So I'm also going to be a partner. So we started Nona off the back of basically believing that we can build WordPress microsites better than anyone else. And I still remember our first invoice, it was 4,000 Rand. And it's pretty crazy to think back because to fast forward to the end of Nona, I think our minimum engagement was something like $60,000 a month, I think. And it went from you know 4,000 Rand for an entire project to $60,000 a month for a project. And at the time, at the beginning, if you had told me we would have built the business to that size, I would have said like, you are dreaming. There is no ways we'll ever get that good. So we started this business, started building WordPress sites, I realized this is more than just a little side hustle for beer money. And it was like, this is actually a better business than my current business. Um, and that's why I sort of started moving away from the, the tech support business and, and more into Nona. Um, that, that process was, was really interesting. And I mean, the Nona history is, is, is very, very long and very um, colorful and not all kind of safe, how, safe for how work. How long was it? How long were you in Nona for? So we, we started Nona in March 2012. So our acquisition was quite cool. It was almost exactly on our 10-year birthday, which was totally oh, wow. coincidental. But it was it was bittersweet, actually, because we celebrated our 10th birthday after the acquisition. But it was kind of around the same time. So it was this bittersweet thing. And like, um, anyway, it, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. So, so, so the Nona journey just sort of, it just evolved. And I won't go into huge detail, but sort of what we focused on at Nona was this sort of notion of, of trying to create the best possible environment for developers to work in. So, you know, we talk about culture and environment and stuff, and that's fine. That's what, that's how, it, that's the sort of result of it. But our focus was like, how do we make the environment the best possible environment for these people to do their best work? Um, and I think that sort of is what most people talk about with culture, but we had an optimal, like we had focused on like a, like very practical things to do. And it, 
it, it, it was interesting. And, and in hindsight, there's something very interesting to reflect back on this is that I don't know how long it was, but probably three years ago, we had a good business and it was profitable, probably more profitable than, than, than most of our competitors within a services business. But it was pretty obvious to us that we had a really shit business model, okay, like a decent business, but a shit business model. And what do I mean by this? And and you and I, Ross, were talking before the recording, but one of my favorite thinkers is, is Naval Ravikant, and he speaks about leverage. You can leverage media, you can leverage people, you can leverage capital, you can leverage code. But the worst form of leverage is selling time. And we had this like really hectic realization that like we had done such hard work to assemble the most difficult people to get, like engineers. Mm. We had kept them, we had nurtured this amazing environment, we'd done like all the hard work, and then we were using it in the worst possible way. We're selling ours and we're like, you, you idiots. Like, like we're so like, we're missing this. Right. And it was this, this realization that our business model was terrible. But, but what was interesting about this is that a friend of mine sort of painted this awesome picture for me around this is he was like, you know, it's really interesting if your, if your business model is bad. So let's say it's like a two out of 10, then your execution has to be like a nine out of 10 just to survive. And that explained Nona very well as we got really, really good at execution because we had to, because if we, because our business model was so bad, our execution had to be amazing. And I just started seeing businesses all around me that had amazing business models, but terrible execution. And they were doing much better than us. And I was going like, <laughs> like who, who's the idiot, right? It's not them, it's us. And there was the shift of going, guys, we've got to figure out how to move out of services because We've done the hard things. We do the hard things. We do them very, very well, but we're using them in the worst possible way. And that sort of kicked off like basically going, okay, we need to work towards an acquisition. And I mean, there's a lot of depth to this because we tried the product thing. We thought we could build our own products. Turned out we weren't very good at like, we're very good at building products. We weren't very good at like creating our own products. We did the whole sweat equity thing. I mean, I guess it was successful, but not not excitingly successful at all and eventually we're like okay well there's kind of only one option if we really want to have sort of real success and that's like basically get acquired um because we, we sort of had a look at this and we went like there's three ways to get into product for us we were like we can build our own products which is very expensive extremely difficult and a massive distraction to the core business and i know that because we tried and we failed and we nearly lost nona in the process because we took our eye off the ball right so that didn't work for us the second one is we can do sweat equity type deals where we sort of take equity in our clients. Now, the problem with that was lots of people wanted to give us equity, but the people that wanted to give us equity were never businesses that we wanted equity in. And the clients that we did want equity in had raised $40 million, so they didn't need to give us equity. So we were in this conundrum. It's like we can take equity in the shit businesses and the great businesses that we want, they're like, we don't need to do sweat equity deals. We can pay you full rate. So we're like, that's not going to work, right? And then the sort of last option was like, well, now that we're getting our clients to a point that are really amazing, big, strong businesses, we can make ourselves so indispensable to this client that they'll acquire us at very, very attractive commercials. And that's a, that's really oversimplified what, what happened is that sort of fast forward right to the end. Yoko was a client of us. We had a really good relationship. They kept wanting to build the team. I mean, I'm massively paraphrasing here, but they sort of said, hey, can you give us more engineers? Can you give us more engineers? Eventually, they're like, can we take all of your engineers? And we're like, no, you definitely can't. And they're like, well, can we just buy you? And we said, well, okay, but I don't know if you're going to like the number. And so the negotiations kicked off and, and here we are today. I think we'll get into that in a second. I just want to jump back. I'm interested, you know, because 
for all the services businesses I've spoken to, and it's quite a lot, and you know, I, I run a business, Nice Work, that's also a services business, and we are in the, the kind of journey, we've been on the journey to get to product for, for a while. Um, and I think for me, the, the big learning that I've had is, is for a long time, we've been building the product or, or at least, you know, we're in branding and marketing. We've been skinning the product, but product is only one portion of it. Like to be a full product business, it's also about distribution. Like you need to crack distribution. And generally, I found that the people who are good at making the product are not good at selling the product, you know, because they're too close to it. In fact, that's one of the reasons people come to us. They come to us because they're like, people don't understand how amazing this thing is. And we're like, it's because you've got no objectivity. But as soon as it's our product, we lose our own objectivity because we've spent 10,000 hours building it. And we're like, oh, but everyone needs to understand all of these subtle nuances that we spent thousands of man hours building in. And ultimately, no one cares. Like we need to take a step back and sell it in a, a meaningful way and distribute it in a meaningful way, which often is almost culturally and skills wise and mind mindset wise is very different to how services business sort of operates. Cause that's normally what the client has to do. It's like your job is to sell it. Our job is to make sure that it looks good and works well, <laughs> like, which is, is what we are kind of built in. Is that a similar thing that you, you faced in your business? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're so different, right? Like they are so different. Like, you know, we were very focused on building product, not marketing it, not positioning it, not creating distribution channels, just building the thing. Mm. So writing the code, doing the design. And look, we never had a line item on an invoice, but quite often we did get involved in the product management and the some of the strategic thinking. It was not something we offered and it was not something we built for, but just because we were extremely close to these, these companies, we often did get involved with it, but we were not experts at it. And I think that's, that that's kind of what, I, what I'm taking from what you were saying is that to build and launch and scale a project or a product requires a lot of specialists, not generalists. And, you know, being at Yoko now, that's like what I'm seeing. And it's amazing to see this is going from like a 40 person business to like, I think Yoko's 560 people. There's space to have specialists that go very deep. And then you have another problem, which is like co-creation and, and collaboration and stuff. Silos, but and silos and things. Yeah. Which any scaling business will have, but you're absolutely right. Like we were experts at what we did but just at what we did. And every time we veered out of that, I wouldn't say we got burnt. That's not true because sometimes we veered out of it and realized we were good at something else and then it might've helped us to niche. But, but, but I think one of the massive learnings for me in business in general, and, and most of your audience probably knows this and it's old hat, but trying to be everything to everyone makes you really sort of not, I wouldn't say valueless, but it, it kind of makes you nothing to everybody. And it took us a long time to get over ourselves and realize that building software is building software is building software. It might be true, but from a positioning perspective, it is not true. And we need to become hyper relevant to the target market that we want to serve. And we went through a very painful, but hugely um, successful in the end process of, of positioning, right? Like, like it's, it's one word, but it's such a massively like loaded word, but First, going through who do we actually want to serve and why? Most businesses don't even do that. But if you've done that, then there's a much more difficult question that you need to answer, which is really, really hard, which is like, why are we particularly relevant to them? So just because we want to serve fintech and blockchain scale-ups because they're well-funded, because they have a bunch of attributes that we like, that's not enough to make us more relevant to them than the other guys. And that's a much harder question because often the answer is nothing. 
nothing makes us more relevant. And then there's this journey that you go on to go, fuck, well, we better, sorry, I don't know if I swear, but like, we better make, we better figure out how to become more relevant. And that's a much more self-reflective, very difficult process to go on. And I, I wouldn't say we like nailed that, but we got pretty far down that process. And what ended up happening was people come to us and they come to us and they say, basically, can you guide us through this process rather than what's your lowest rate you'll charge us? So you move yourself away from a commoditized offering. And if we take the language of David C. Baker, who is just amazing in, in, this, in this area, he talks about moving from the vendor to the expert. The vendor is a commodity that negotiates and usually loses on price. An expert is someone that takes the client through a journey that is not about price. That is about like, help us. We need you show us what to do. I wouldn't say we cracked that, but we got very far and it just changed everything. The rates, our rates more than doubled in a very short space of time. And we were about to double them again when we got acquired, we were achieving rates that we thought were literally just obscene when we first sort of thought about getting there. The client types got bigger and better. And the weird thing, Ross, I don't know if you've experienced this, but selling at two and a half times the rate is actually easier than selling at a lower yes. rate, but you've got to have the confidence to build it up. Anyway, so I'll stop. I'm going on a bit of a rant, but that positioning thing was, was just everything. It was everything for us. It just, we just pretty slow learners and it took us like, I don't know, seven years to realize that that's actually the thing we need to get right. Well, I think, I mean, this is, you know, music to my ears because I run a business, nice work and positioning and purpose is at the core of what we believe any great brand is. And interestingly, when you work with us, people come and they're looking for a visual solution, but 90% of our work is actually more cognitive because once you've understood those reasons, the visual kind of almost creates itself. And I'm not saying it's easy to do, but it's the easiest part in, in everything that you've you've just described. But I, I can say that, you know, when when I heard you talk about Nona, you were, you know, the thing that stuck out is you were like, we are a blockchain, you know, kind of development business, which was much more interesting than most of the development houses that I, you know, that I hear. Um, and I love that thing of you are not sort of, you're not defined by what you say yes to, but, but what you say no to. And I think you were always very clear on what you said no to. Um, was that part of that process of your positioning is figuring out what to so, say to? Because I'm sure you get all sorts of offers to do all sorts of things that you can technically do. You have a team who can pull it off. You have the skills to pull it off, but it's not necessarily something you want to do. Oh, man. So I think it was Keith Jones. Um, I think it was him, either him or David Baker. But one of them said something that stuck with me, and they said positioning, positioning is not an exercise in strategy. It's an exercise in courage. And... The reason it's an exercise in courage is because at some point you have to start saying no to really good work when you probably should be saying yes. yes. It, it's very like it's very rare that you have a business that just does this beautiful transition from this thing to that thing with no risk involved. Like, you know, if you get that right, tell me how to do that. But I don't know how to do that. So, yeah, totally. Like we weren't like stupid about it. We didn't go, OK, from tomorrow, we're just going to say no to everything. But there was this very deliberate sort of move to going, what is our niche? Cool. It's blockchain and fintech scale-ups. We know what that means. So what we're saying is it's not that we're going to say no to everything that falls out of that, but what it means is we're going to heavily, heavily prioritize stuff that falls in that. Even if a, I don't know, med tech opportunity comes up and is better, it means we, we're going to take the fintech or the blockchain opportunity because it falls within our niche. And that is really scary. You know, we had almost 40 staff at the end. You know what engineers cost and good designers. We had an enormous salary bill. 
we're a services business, so no recurring income revenue. It's really scary. The difference is when you get this right, you can double, triple, quadruple your bottom line without adding headcount because you get to charge a lot more because you're moving a little bit away from just commoditized pricing to more of a value-based type pricing model where without sounding arrogant, you can kind of say you can go somewhere else, but these are the risks of going somewhere else. And here is our portfolio of work. Here is our credibility. Here is our believability. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is like, you know, when I speak to business owners now a lot, like OKRs, rocks, goals, positioning, strategy, I think people fixate so much on like what's written there. But what I try to bring their attention to is when you're saying this, what you're really saying is you're going to say no to everything else. So if your OKR this quarter is this, now I'm going to test you. If somebody comes along and asks you to do this thing, can you say no to it? Can you say no to that? Can you say no to that? And you watch them change their frame and they go, shit, no, actually, this was just a to-do item. And with positioning, that's like the ultimate, in my experience, it's the ultimate prioritization. Um, I think something that we learned, though, <laughs> which was I'm quite an extreme person. So like I kind of live on on extreme, just on the extremes. I don't know how to do the middle ground very well. And, you know, my, my first reaction was like, cool, we're going to say no to everything. And I remember David Baker, who was working with us, he was like, no, you idiot. If you have got bums on seats, you fill them with anything at all that you have to. Like, first and foremost, you have an obligation to just keep the lights on. And that actually made me feel quite great because it's like, no, like this is this is a journey. You don't just flick over in one day, right? Um, so you, you got to be, maybe it's just me, but like you have to apply a level of, of common sense to it. Um, and it's really just about focusing the conversation, your one-on-ones, your retros, your company-wide stand-ups, your everything just has to become obsessively repetitive about what you're going to try and become the best in the world at. And I think one last thing I'll say on that is we thought that like you can only say that you are focused on, in our case, fintech and blockchain when you're already incredibly good at it. And we kind of gave ourselves a license in the early days to say, no, like we back ourselves to become exceptionally good at this and we're going to become exceptionally good at this, but there's going to be a period in which we're going to have to say we're already get good at it and just back ourselves to get there really, really quickly. And that's scary because that's an integrity question, right? Because like fake it till you make it cool, but you're playing with other people's businesses. So there was this kind of commitment to go, yeah, maybe we're only 70% of the way, but it means we're going to kill ourselves between now and being able to honestly say that we're expert at this. And that was a sort of very deep commitment that we had to make. Um, and that can be quite scary because if you make those claims, and you're not actually prepared to go the extra mile until you get there, you can destroy people's businesses, right? Which you just shouldn't do. I'll stop there for a bit. Is that, but is that not also the, the benefits? You know, you talked about the fact that you can deliver very well. Uh, you know, and I think that's where, where services businesses often shine is they, they're not boxed by a, a particular product or service or thing. So if, if somebody says, oh, we need to do augmented reality, they're like, oh, we've never done it, but like I can probably figure it out. And, you know, then they sort of attack attack that with the same sort of level of, of ferocity as they do kind of everything else. Um, which is is an interesting sort of skill as a services business because very, like, I don't know, we find that clients come and they go, we want you to do 80% of what you're very good at, but then I need to tack 20% on the end that's not necessarily your main thing, but is is tangential to what you already do. 
And if you say no, the risk is that you open them up to another supplier who can then go, well, we can do that other 80%. So you sort of say yes, and maybe this is a gap in my thinking, but you say yes, and then you sort of stretch your skills. And like you say, sometimes you learn things that you can actually add to the pie that are not necessarily... Uh, you wouldn't have done if that client didn't make that request of you. So we we definitely did that over the years. And um, I think it definitely contributed to us getting to where we got to. I would still say that in my experience, the goal is definitely to not veer out of what you're very good at. But but let me just qualify. Like in our world, we would have to often look at new technologies. Now that makes sense, right? So if we're doing blockchain development, it's kind of silly to say, we only do development on the Neo protocol. Like that's hyper, hyper niche and probably not a great idea for a services business. I know some people would argue with me. I know there's some like Ethereum only agencies and stuff that that's cool. So we would veer out of it from that perspective. We would say like, hey, we've got tons of experience with Algorand, Tezos, Ethereum, whatever. But we're totally happy to take on a whatever, I don't know, a Polygon project, right? From that perspective, I agree with you, but it was still within what we were doing. If somebody yes. came to us and said, hey, can you do an AR piece? We're just going, no, just hard no. Um, because we knew like it would not be good for us. But that was at the end, to be very clear. Like as we were maturing, oh, yeah, totally, man. We would be like, we'll just do whatever you want. And I do think there's a time in the maturity of a business to do that because you've got to figure out what you're very good at. Um, you know, for us, we figured out like while we were doing this process stuff, like the, the positioning stuff, we sort of, I think it was Ed who had a, a great phrase is before we realized we should, we're a good fit for fintech and blockchain. He sort of said, you know, we're we're good at building products that are not safe to fail, and we sort of really explored that because what that meant for us was like if it's handling like really important information or money or smart contracts, that's a good fit for us because we were pretty anal and pretty obsessive about quality, standards, security, that sort of stuff. But similarly, that meant we're not actually a great company to come for. If you don't need that, because what it meant is we were going to be slow and we were going to be expensive, but you didn't actually need that. If you were building a project that was safe to fail, and many projects are safe to fail, just to be clear, that's not a good or a bad thing. And that sounds really simple now, but that was like thinking back a few years, that was great for us because we sort of realized that before, that was like the catalyst to realizing that actually FinTech and blockchain was a good a good fit for us. I'm pretty passionate about like blockchain and crypto, so that that kind of helped and, and and steered things a bit. Um, but we had to apply logic, not just passion. I love that. So let's take let's take a bit of a, a diversion to to the global pandemic. Like, uh, take us back to sort of March 2020 when all of the kind of the the rails started to come off. Like, what did you do as a business? Because you know that that was before the acquisition, um, you know, sort of in the run up to it. Can you talk through kind of how you thought about COVID and what it did for your business and, and how it ended up with Yoko? Yeah. So um, so firstly, we, we started fiddling with remote work quite a long time ago, quite a long time before COVID. And um, I think it was around the Cape Town water crisis that we started that, but that doesn't really matter. Um, and we fiddled with this remote first, like remote first was quite a buzzword at the time, but, but still quite like, you know, cool kid and, and new. It really wasn't mainstream. So we, we thought like, hey, let's try and be cool and let's 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 see if we can do a remote first vibe. So we started experimenting with remote and I won't bore you with the details, but we learned a lot, which now everyone knows because everyone's done it. But we actually came up with this thing called remote second, where we said remote first is actually not a good idea. Like if you can be with people, be with people. But let's build a business that doesn't depend on people being with people in the same space. 
And we set out, which sounds so obvious now, right? But before COVID, that was not mainstream thinking at all, right? No. So we set out to build this business where we said, hey, every, I think it was like every 10 days, I can't remember, every 10 days, you've got to come into the office for our dedicated learning day. But apart from that, you don't have to come. We're going to make an awesome office environment. So we want you to come. Let me be clear. Our preference is that you come, but you don't have to. And we won't have a first and second class citizen. It'll just be like, we want you to come to the office. The office will be cool. It'll have all the stereotypical things that a tech office has, like yoga and beer fridges and all the things that are, you know, kind of compulsory these days. So we'll make it cool, but you don't have to be here. And out of the, I don't know, 30 odd people in the business at the time, I'd say about six of us went every day. And that worked well, right? Like we learned a lot from that and we, we kind of built this muscle of remote working um, or more, more, more accurately work from home. It wasn't quite remote work yet. So we were pretty good at this. Like I actually did a bunch of talks on this to, to sort of ex share experiences. And I wrote an article and, and it, it actually, anyway, it, 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 was, it was sort of quite early thinking about this stuff, right? So when COVID hit, it was pretty great for us because basically we said, hey, you know how you come to the office every 10 days? Just don't do that. And that was it. That was basically the impact. The positive impact, though, was... The six of us are going to have to change. The rest of you yeah. are going to be fine. Dude, it's exactly how it went. We got pretty bleak because we liked being in the office. So, but, but okay, the, the sort of more, the more interesting thing was, um, and I don't know if you experienced this, but we realized like most South African businesses do. Um, I live in Australia now, but then I was living in South Africa. That... The, the RAND is, is, is probably not the best way to earn money if you're based in South Africa. And if you're doing stuff like design or dev or knowledge work, you really can't go and try and earn dollars and pounds, et cetera. So we spent a lot of time going to London to try and get work. And in New York, I think once or twice and, and a bunch of other places, but London predominantly. And we, we were successful in, in the sense that we got international work. And by the time we sold the business, because the vast majority of our revenue was in dollars, um, but, and while we were successful, we were consistently hit with this very difficult wall to break down, which was, oh, but you know, the guys just down the road in Mayfair, you know, we can just walk to their office. It's so much better being able to just walk over and talk to them about mm. stuff. And we were like, honestly, it's not. Like, it actually doesn't make a difference. And they were like, yeah, but it does to us. And it was this constant sort of argument of not argument but like we had to like sell it to them and we had success but not not like not enough when COVID hit it was just the best thing for us because that conversation just literally disappeared it literally just stopped happening almost overnight because people as everybody knows you couldn't just walk down the road in New York to your designer's office anymore because no one was in their office you couldn't yes. just cruise on, on the train in London to go and speak to someone because nobody was allowed out of their house so it was just the coolest thing because that entire obstacle just vanished. And yet we were so set up for remote working. We had like four years worth of portfolio work that we could prove and show exactly how we deliver projects in a remote environment with four years worth of experience, which no one else had. So from that perspective, it's quite hard to measure, but we, our revenue and our margins and our success really really sort of went up and to the right and i really do it's hard to measure the stuff for us but I, I do put it down to that i put it down to that massive barrier just disappearing and now of course it's just really common right if you speak to any especially in the web3 space you will not find a web3 business that has everybody in one city like no. it just doesn't exist like i mean i'm open to well, be wrong skills about aren't this. really concentrated enough maybe new york maybe maybe new york maybe <sighs> london 
but not really. There's not enough people who have experience yeah. in the space to actually have a 50 man office yeah. in one place. And, and, and the people that you're attracting, they're like, no, nah, man, I want to go live in Costa Rica. Like, if you want to hire me, like, that's where I'm going to live because I've got 17 <laughs> other job offers, right? So, like, the power dynamic has shifted as well, which I think is fantastic, by the way. I don't think that's a bad thing. But it was just awesome for us because I'm not going to pretend we planned for this. We have apps. We had no idea this was coming. Obviously, this was complete and utter luck, but it was luck. And we got lucky from that perspective. Now, it's not that unique. The stuff I talk about now is like, yeah, you and everyone else, man. But like four years ago, it wasn't you and everyone else. And it actually posed, so on the negative side, it did pose a problem, Russ. And the problem there was, what is the next no-no cool factor? Because we were very unique in that we were allowing people to work from home at that stage. Then everybody could work from home. So then what was actually cool about Nona? And we literally used to ask people every quarter in the one-on-ones that I had was like, what should the next Nona cool factor be? It used to be work from home, but now every company does that. So what's the next thing? And we never answered that. It was a difficult thing to actually differentiate. So there's there was a weird, like definitely net positive, but there was also like, oh, we're actually not that special anymore to attracting talent. Um, and obviously that's everything in businesses yes. like yours and, and Nona. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the COVID story. Um, and it was hardcore. I think personally, um, you know, I'm still in Australia and I'm the only one in Australia and like the business, you know, I, I was a CEO and, and had an amazing leadership team, um, mainly in South Africa and, and we did good things, but it's, it's shit. It's not nice not being with them. Like, I, I, I got to be very clear about this. Like, I way prefer predominantly being in an office with people, but you can absolutely run and scale a business, as we all know now, without having to be in the office with people. I don't think it's particularly healthy, but it's completely doable. So if you could wave a magic wand right now, would you go back to an office with, with your team? Uh, I would go back to having the option to go to the office when I want. Um, and that's kind of what I mean. So I wouldn't go for eight to 10 hours a day, five days a week, but I would probably go two to three times a day, a, a week for a couple of hours. Um, I definitely don't think people should be forced to work office hours in an office. Let me be really clear about that. But I do think that lots of personal in-person contact is very, very healthy. Um, and, 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 you know, I said, I used to do these talks and, and write, write these articles about remote work before it was a thing. And I always used to start the talk by asking the audience to close their eyes and think about a time when they really just had to get something done, a project, studying, whatever, and then like give them a second to think about it. And then I'd say like, where did you go to do that work? And nobody ever said, oh, the office. You know, it was like <laughs> a library, this room, that yes. thing, this thing. It's never like the office. And that's the point. Yet why do we make people do that? So it's, 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 this, it's this concept, like the ultimate for me, the way of the magic wand is like have an amazing place that you physically can go to, but you don't have to. That's the way of the magic wand thing, which Yoko does very well, by the way. I'm just the doer who lives in Australia, so I, I, I don't get to <laughs> I don't get to visit them. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Rich Maholland uh, always talks about the fact that when people put headphones on, they don't want to be at the office anymore. You know, when you feel like you need to block out everyone around you, being in a crowded office space with noise and distraction is not necessarily the right place. Exactly, I, I agree with that. Yeah. So now how did this, you've, you've painted this picture, you were set up for COVID, you, you've transitioned your revenue, you're earning dollars now, your profit margins are kind of going up. Like, why would you abandon that path, uh, you know, and, and start the, the process of, of selling to, to Yoko? 
Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not going to lie. The commercials were extremely good. Um, and, and that's an enormous factor. So I'll just get that out the way because I don't want to be all, uh, I don't, I don't want to talk bullshit and say that wasn't an enormous factor. That was a huge factor. The, the deal, the timing was phenomenal. What Yoko needed, what we had, the market, the timing, the talent market, the opportunity was phenomenally good. Um, so, so with that out the way, that was a big, that was a big part of it, right? Um, I think the main reason we did it is that, you know, I spoke earlier about like services businesses being a shit business model, that it's not just that it's a bad business model. It's also that it's kind of thankless. So you might do amazing work and win awards and have clients that love you, et cetera, but you're always building stuff for other people. You're never like, you're never actually making the impact yourself. At least that's how it feels. You do some projects, you do some work, you might stay there for a while, but ultimately it's not your work. Like you don't really get to make the impact. And Yoko came along and has got an incredible purpose and an incredible mission and is making an impact at enormous scale. And this was an opportunity for us to take what we had built over the last 10 years and direct it towards something that really matters, that is making a really positive impact in people's lives, that's also commercially extremely viable and exciting and has scale beyond what we would ever be able to build, you know, impacting millions of people, literally, in a positive way. And we were just like, it just makes sense. It just makes perfect sense. Um, I don't think the deal could have existed two years before it happened. And I don't think the deal can exist two years after it happened. I think the timing window was quite unique. Um, so we went for it. Um, the other thing I need to be clear about, hey, like just to, just to speak really plainly here, like we were in it for 10 years and we were tired. Like we were tired of the services game, man. Like it's, it is tiring. It's exhaustive. You, you, constantly chasing the next deal it's a project-based business this you know i was in charge of lead gen and it's just just never stops we built up enormous talent in the business credibility a great reputation an amazing portfolio in a space especially when to talk about the blockchain stuff like we like there were a few businesses i would venture to say in the world that had our capability and experience in certain elements of, of blockchain which is a pretty cool thing to have been a part of right like mm. from 2016 until when we got acquired we built a lot of projects and worked directly with some of the biggest protocols in the space. Tezos was a client. Algorand was a client, like directly work, like building the infrastructure. It was amazing, right? And I think we were just kind of ready to ready to move on to a product-based business where we could actually make a significant impact. Um, and I don't think this, I don't think there could be a better choice, at least in the African context, than Yoko. I mean, it's that the potential is just so big for us to be a part of them. Yeah, I mean, uh, on, on the podcast that I run for my company, I, I spoke, spoke to, to Matt, the head of yeah, brand, and just the way one. they think about kind of sharing data and, and actually really championing people. And, and, you know, I'm not sure if he just did a really good job of selling me, but it really does feel like that that's how they behave as a company. Um, and I think that sits very much with what we encourage all of our clients to do is to actually really give a shit about the people that you are serving because if you do that and you do it well and you do it over a long period of time then ultimately they will start to care about you because that's generally how humans behave if i if i do nice things for you and look after you and care about you the kind of social pressure over time is that you will return the favor unless you are a, a psychopath and it's, uh, it seems to have worked very well it, it has and i can tell you because I'm, i mean I'm, I'm, I'm in yoko and i'm part of yoko but but my experience has been coming from the outside and i can tell you that part of the business is very authentic there's a deep care and a deep focus uh, like an obsession on on the customer which is how it has to be and 
in fact, I don't know which book it's from, and I'll probably get it a bit wrong, but that, you know, you just said really reminded me of, I think it was Herb Kelleher from um, Southwest Airlines, which is such a cool business case, like a case study, just like how to run a business. And I don't know how true this is, but but basically I seem to remember reading somewhere that they got into some financial trouble and they had built up such a loyal customer base that like their clients who were like people who were flying on airlines were sending them like $100 checks just saying, hey, I know this is kind of insignificant, but I just really want to do my part to try and help your business get out of this rut. I mean, that kind of customer loyalty is just, it's priceless, insane. right? It's insane. Yeah. And, you know, I think Yoko does have that kind of obsessive customer view, um, which is great. I mean, Kat, you know, Katleko, the, the CEO, is, is, is really great at reminding the entire business often, like when in doubt, just think about the merchant, go and speak to the merchants. Put your, 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 you know, just, just put your view through their lens and you'll probably solve your problem. And I think that's critical. And, and it's really cool for me because as a services business, you don't really get to do that. It's like, it's not, it's, it's, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Every right? lens is different. Every lens is different. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you got to sell hours and you got to send those invoices. It's like a very different set of motivating factors. So, so it's, it's, it's very early days, Ross. Um, and, and it's super unfamiliar. Um, but so much to learn, so many challenges, and just so much opportunity. So we're, we're super pumped. I mean, uh, like I've really enjoyed our conversation and we're almost out of time, but I'd love to, to ask you one question just to sort of close it all out. Now, you've gone from being an entrepreneur, you know, kind of in, I don't know, in, in inverted commas, master of your own destiny to now kind of an employee. Like, can you talk about that challenge you know, for yourself or like if it has been a challenge, like how have you managed that kind of transition from, from one world into another? Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard, man. Like, like I think the first thing I'll say is maybe something um, unfamiliar to a lot of people is that if you're not an entrepreneur, people have painted this picture that entrepreneurs have got all this freedom and it's easy. <laughs> like, God, no, man. Like, you, I felt chained more often than not by my business. I didn't take leave properly for I don't know how many years as an entrepreneur. Like, maybe it's just me. But entrepreneurship to me doesn't equal freedom. In fact, entrepreneurship to me equaled a shit ton of responsibility and pressure. And, and, and I loved it. But make no mistake, from my perspective, it is a lot easier being an employee than it is being an entrepreneur, right? Of course, there's trade-offs. And you don't, like, like risk-reward as a... Peter Druckett said, all, all profit comes from risk. And I actually believe that. So, so that's the first thing is I just wanted like, to make that statement that I certainly didn't equate being an entrepreneur with like super freedom, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is I've literally never had a job in my life. This is the first time I've ever had a job, okay? So I'm 39 years old, I'm 40 in a few months, and this is my first job I've ever had. So I've been a barman and that sort of stuff when I was younger, but I've never been employed. So just, just you know, think about that for a second. 39 years old, first time you've actually had a job. So what's my experience been my experience is i want to learn from the founders that have built something literally more than 10 times the size of what what me and my partners were able to build so like there's an enormous learning opportunity through this what i think i'm battling with the most is i've never been in a position where i have needed a feedback loop because i've always been the one leading the business and creating those feedback loops and in a business Yoko size, it's very difficult to do that at scale, right? There's 500 odd people. It's very, very hard to create those kind of tight feedback loops the way we did at Nona. Um, and yet I still feel like I need them. So I, I'm trying to figure out like, how do you create these feedback loops that are needed in an organization that big 
that are, that are meaningful. So, so, so that's, yeah. that's a challenge. Um, I, I guess my take on this, Ross, is, um, and, and I report directly to, to one of the founders. Um, it's mine and his relationship that kind of catalyzed the deal. He's a super cool guy. Um, I definitely feel like I'm managed or anything. We just kind of talk a lot. And what I said to him was like, hey, so I'm, I'm taking over this function, which I, I don't have a huge amount of experience in. I've backed myself to learn about it very quickly and I know how to lead people and build teams. And But, but this is a new thing for me. So what I'm going to do is I'm literally just going to do what I know how to do. And that is, I'm going to pretend that my function is effectively a small business and I'm just going to apply small business principles to my function. Yoko is the client. My team is my team. And I'm going to see how that works. And it seems to be working pretty well. And if you think about bigger product businesses, that's kind of like what the tribe format is. It's kind of like mm -hmm. a small business within a greater business serving a problem, right? Like a, like a problem set. So it's super early days. Um, I feel like out of my depth some days completely. Other days I feel super confident. It, like it's just, it's an awesome roller coaster, but you know, that's no different to being an entrepreneur, but it's super early. And the business, you know, just to give you context here, Ross, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think Yoko has, one of the guys on my team has been there for a long time. And I think he said to me like three years ago, three and a half years ago, Yoko was like 30 or 40 people. Yoko's like over 500 people today. So they have grown. Yeah, it's probably going to be 5,000 in the Man. not too distant future. And that brings with it like crazy chaos and uncertainty. And I mean, I love it, mm -hmm. but it's, there's a lot of stuff for us to figure out. Right. Um, but the core is very clear. The vision is very clear. The purpose is very clear. The values are very clear. The stuff that matters is very clear. The leadership is very strong um, at the founder level, at the exec level. So, um, yeah, talk to me in six months and, and let's see, cause it's only been like, I don't know, three months or four months. Um, mm. but, but, but different, definitely different, very different experience to being an entrepreneur and a business owner. I think that's a very uh, thoughtful, thoughtful point to end the, the interview on Mike. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, especially since you've probably got an entire evening work day ahead of you sitting in Australia, working in South Africa. Only a pleasure, man. Great to chat, Ross. Thanks for putting in the effort and, and putting this, uh, this series together. Awesome. So, I mean, to everyone who's been listening, thank you very much. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, uh, please share it with someone. Um, I always believe that, that sharing knowledge is one of the greatest and most generous things that you can do. So if you learned something or this sparked it, please pass it on to somebody. Um, the show is produced by me, Ross Drakes. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a member of the Entrepreneurs Organization. If you are interested in finding out more and you want to kind of start this journey, go to eonetwork.org. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll catch you in the next one. Bye-bye.